You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, MD, Big Beard, Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, The Knight of Dampier, Wit, Pablo, Nikki, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Deck, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Austin and eBay Panda. Welcome to the crew. As well as our new Commodores, Proctor, Willie P., and Pirate Lord Jack Joyce, Grand Admiral of the South Seas. You know, you're right, Jack, we might need to truncate that name a bit. Regardless, welcome to the crew. And this week of all weeks, we have a couple of special Commodores to welcome to the crew. Nikita, the Corsair of Central Park. Welcome to the crew. And a Merry Christmas from your dad. And Captain Torso. Welcome to the crew. And Merry Christmas from Laura. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. There are those who would tell you that Thomas II was the first real pirate of the golden age of piracy. And I see where they'd be coming from there. There is something to that statement, but it's still not quite right. Within the parameters of what would make two the first pirate of the golden age, I would argue for someone like Jean Hamlin of the pirate ship Trickster. He was one of the last of the buccaneers, that's true, but he was also one of the first pirates to sail from America to Africa, where he would spend a good couple of years pirating everything he could get his hands on. Thomas II and the pirate ship Amity were the first proper pirates of the Golden Age to capture a really amazingly rich prize out of the Mughal Empire, among the first pirates to hit a Mughal ship, and that changed the game. To pick up my metaphor from last time, that's Elvis on Ed Sullivan. And a flood of pirates are going to follow in the wake of Thomas II and Amity. That's going to set off the first explosion of the golden age of piracy. But before we get there, I do want to take a day to look at the pirates and privateers and unlicensed naval contractors who were operating at the same time as Amity. Sea rovers who would make an impact, but 
never be quite as rich or as famous as Thomas II. Well, at least not most of them. This is episode 193, Interlopers. According to the English Royal Africa Company, the RAC, an interloper was anybody engaging in the slave trade, in English markets at least, without a license from the crown. Since only the RAC got those licenses from the crown, an interloper was anyone who was slaving that was not a member of the company. And there were two types of slaving vessels and slaving missions engaged in by the RAC. First were what we, at least I, usually think of when we imagine the slave trade. Those large vessels who made stops at their factories all along the coast of West Africa. And of course we're all aware that a factory in 1700 was not a factory, not a manufacturing plant, and certainly not industrialized, more an armed and defended fortress warehouse intended for international trade. We're talking huge estates with manor houses and barracks within their grounds, and, of course, actual warehouses where food and spices and dyes and precious metals and living human beings were stored for their voyage on the triangle trade to America and then on to Europe. Those were the hub of slave shipping. But of course, those factories did engage in slaving expeditions, you know, actually going out into the interior of Africa to capture slaves. But that was, most often those kind of expeditions looked kind of like a safari. You know, big game hunting and logging, literally gathering ebony and ivory. Most of the actual capturing of slaves appears to have been done by other Africans. They were captured through warfare and imperial expansion. It's a method that's always been used to capture slaves, from Greece to Rome to Mesoamerica. In recent years, there have been some good questions raised as to the truth and validity of that claim. That there was propaganda and historical revisionism used to somehow lessen the guilt of European slavers. And, yeah, it's not a universal truth. The methods did vary depending on time and place. Some of that is certainly 19th century propaganda. And while those questions have raised a lot of good points about the accepted history of the era, the pendulum has begun to swing back toward the middle. This kind of thing did happen, kind of a lot. But that doesn't lessen anybody's guilt in this whole affair. You don't get to say, but officer, I only bought the drugs and then, you know, sold them at a higher price. That doesn't make you any more innocent. It makes you a drug dealer. That's the first kind of mission engaged in by the Royal Africa Company. The second was perhaps even more common, but smaller in scale. The company would issue what amounted to almost privateering commissions, private contractors who were to scout out potential new markets for the Royal Africa Company. Now, all of this was highly regulated by the company. Those privateers, for the lack of a better word, those ships were to make contact with people on the coast to initiate trade, and then, once a good trade relationship had been established, they could begin to talk about Maybe procuring a few slaves, if you happen to know where to find any, of course. 
This was the basis for how new factories were to be established. And it took time. You didn't always want to build a factory everywhere you landed, necessarily. It took years of careful diplomacy to make that decision. Small ships building trust with the locals, procuring guides and translators. You don't just jump right into capturing slaves with people you just met. It takes a bit of finesse. One such agent of the RAC, captain of the ship Hannibal, Thomas Phillips, made these kind of careful expeditions to the African coast on a regular basis. He spent years of his life and career doing just that. Which makes it noteworthy when Phillips wrote in his ship's log in 1693, quote, I have nowhere upon the coast met Negroes so shy as here, which makes me fancy they have had tricks played on them by such blades as long been, alias Every, who have seized them and carried them away. End quote. Henry Every, long been, was active on the coast of Africa in 1692 and into 1693. This is the first mention we have of Henry Every in the record since he left Royal Naval Service after the Battle of Beachy Head, and it appears that he was acting as an interloper. Now this particular passage doesn't give us any real details on Every's actual activity on the coast of Africa. Captain Phillips tells us that tricks were played by such blades as long been. It suggests to me that Every was probably the most notorious interloper active at the time, the reference point for all of the others active on the coast of Africa. And as an interloper, Every and the others were breaking more rules than just trading in human lives outside the law. They were upsetting that diplomatic balance that the RAC relied upon. It was a serious infraction and hurt their business. When Captain Thomas complains about the shyness of the locals, he's talking about the people with whom he and others like him had been building those relationships for some time now. Not slaves, but merchants. And Henry Every would sail in, flying the cross of St. George, that red cross on a white background, the national flag of England, prior to unionization. In naval circles, it was called the King's Jack, and it was a flag that those locals would have recognized as friendly. Then, well, actually, this gives me an opportunity to read from one of my favorite books about pirates, the book that got me interested in real piracy, The Republic of Pirates by Colin Woodard. Woodard writes, quote, Avery's later admirers made much of his upstanding behavior toward English and European captives, but they also tended to skip over or make light of his treatment of non-white foreigners who fell into his clutches. His crew and captives would later describe many acts of cruelty. Once on the coast of Africa, Avery lured a band of local tribesmen aboard with the promise of trade. Then he stole their gold clapped them into irons, and sold at least seven of them into slavery. End quote. Now that's a tidbit that we know about thanks to the records of a colonial administrator named Cadwaller Jones. Jones was the governor of a small, poor, but growing colony in the West Indies. In 1689, following the Glorious Revolution, Jones had sailed for the Bahamas with a new charter for those islands. 
It was Jones that rechristened the colonial capital of the Bahamas Charlestown after the new King William. It was to be called Nassau. Now, Nassau was always a haven for pirates and privateers. We've passed through it time and time again with the likes of Jan Willems and Thomas Paine and, of course, the current governor of Massachusetts, William Phipps. But on 7 June 1692, an earthquake hit the island of Jamaica, and it was a bad one. The capital of Jamaica, Port Royal, was the largest English trading hub in the West Indies, one of the largest cities in the Caribbean, and it was a notorious hive of scum and villainy, home to many a scallywag, and in 1692, in that earthquake, it was destroyed. It fell into the ocean. They still, today, pull up fines from the sea floor from time to time. The earthquake itself, and the subsequent tsunami, and then the homelessness and lack of food and proper medical care, all in all left more than 5,000 people dead. But all of those pirates and privateers who called Port Royal a base were suddenly out of a home. In years past, they would have likely sailed for Tortuga, but England and France were currently at war in 1692. In days past, they probably would have sailed for Tortuga, but in 1692, England and France were at war. La Rodegraf would have killed them. So instead, they sailed for what had been, prior to this time, something of a quiet hideout, a place to relax, to drink rum, to maybe hunt some ambergris, but more than anything else to let the heat die down. Nassau you could describe as kind of a vacation home for the buccaneers. But within a few weeks of the destruction of Port Royal, the port at Nassau, in the heart of the Bahamas, was filled with pirate ships. The coast was suddenly littered with tents and then with shacks, and finally, fully-fledged buildings started going up. Establishments that offered rum and women and gaming went up quickly. The locals from Nassau and the survivors from Port Royal wanted to get their cut of whatever the pirates were going to bring in. The governor of Nassau, Cadwaller Jones, was powerless to stop any of this, and I doubt that he wanted to stop any of it. England was at war with France, but it's not like the Royal Navy was going to send a squadron in to defend Nassau. But now, through sheer luck, uh, an earthquake was the cause. Now, he had an armada of well-armed pirate ships in the harbor. Instead of trying to kick all of those pirates out, Cadwaller Jones welcomed them in with open arms. If, that is, they were willing to do business with him. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. 
But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Jones set himself up as kind of a pirate liaison. On the one hand, he was a fence, buying and selling illicit goods for resale, but on the other, he was a colonial administrator, he was a royally appointed governor, and he had contacts that could give the pirates jobs. Among these contacts was a doctor in Charleston in the Carolina colony, but we'll talk about him next time. The other primary contact was a rich and powerful merchant out of New York, Frederick Phillips. And with Frederick Phillips comes Adam Baldridge. This right here is the golden age of piracy taking shape. Thanks to the Jamaican earthquake of 1692 and the subsequent collapse of long-established slave markets there, a bunch of players were suddenly trying to get into the game. There was this worldwide criminal conspiracy from New York to Nassau to Madagascar that was built to corner the global slave market. Henry Every, we know, was among those pirates and interlopers who ran a kind of alternate triangle trade. Henry Every and those in his line of work would get a commission from Governor Jones in Nassau. From there, they would sail up to New York or Charleston and take on a shipload of guns and foodstuffs and booze. Lots of booze. And then they would sail on to Africa and finally, St. Mary's Island. They'd sell the cargo that they had been commissioned to carry to Africa in America, as well as any that they might have of their own. And then they would pick up slaves, either by capturing them themselves or buying them from one of their bases in Africa. Finally, they would take those slaves back to Nassau and to Charleston, where they would be sold at market. This is a, an alternate definition of the pirate round, as opposed to the Indian Ocean round, which we discussed last time, but I don't like this definition as much. It has to do less with piracy and more with men like Cadwaller Jones and Frederick Phillips. It's less a pirate round and more of a a slaver's round, kind of a precursor to the pirate round. If we were to go back just a few years, to before the Glorious Revolution and Governor Codwaller Jones, to 1685, we would meet a trio of pirates operating originally out of New England. In 1685, Captain Thomas Henley, with his shipmates Thomas Woolery and Christopher Geff, arrived at Bermuda with a captured Dutch prize in tow. You may recall that prior to 1686, when Bermuda became a crown colony, the island was much less permissible toward this kind of thing. Captain Henley, upon going ashore to sell this prize, was arrested. Thomas Woolery and Christopher Geff only just escaped capture themselves. 
But from Bermuda, those two took that same route that Thomas II would take a few years later. They sailed around the Cape of Good Hope to Madagascar and finally into the Red Sea. There they captured a few smaller prizes, mostly Arab shipping, and sailed it back across the Atlantic with holds full of loot. However, their options for a place to land and fence their goods were limited. Bermuda was out. In fact, most of the West Indies were cracking down on piracy. So in 1687, Thomas Woolery and Christopher Geff arrived at New Providence Island, aboard a large and quite rich pirate vessel. This was before Cadwaller Jones arrived in the Bahamas with such progressive ideas on piracy. The local magistrate at the time would write, quote, It was the king's order that the pirates should not be entertained. As she continued standing in, he means the pirate ship staying in port, I fired a shot across her forefoot. She then anchored, and next day Woolery told me that he was come to wood and water, that he had a commission that had done nothing contrary to it, and that he had taken in Geff and his companions in extremity of distress. I refused him leave to come in, and he sailed away next day. I am told that they burnt the ship at Andrews Island and disappeared, leaving only six or seven men in the Bahamas. End quote. Now that is a good story. Turning away the pirates, firing across the bow, but no one believed that story. Everyone from Bermuda to Boston suspected that the pirates were still harbored there at New Providence Island. The lieutenant governor of Jamaica, Hinder Molesworth, who you may remember as one of Morgan's adversaries, Molesworth had first-hand knowledge of Geff and Woolery still active in the Bahamas. It's likely that he received this first-hand information from the pirate-turned-pirate hunter, John Coxon. You might remember him as well. So Molesworth sent out HMS Drake to capture Geff and Woolery. And the Drake reportedly, quote, quarreled and burnt the pirate ship, but some of them had bought a vessel and intended to sail for New England, but were detained by want of provisions. Some of these pirates have so much money they pay half a crown for a pound of flour. End quote. But that is yet another good story that the pirates were detained, or perhaps even that this battle took place. We know that Thomas Woolery and Christopher Geff were going to get away with most of their men and cargo intact, and they were going to make it to Boston, where they would sell that cargo. Geff and Woolery aren't the point here. They're merely an illustration that piracy was alive and well at New Providence before Cadwaller Jones and Henry Every. But by that point, by the time Cadwaller Jones was in office and all of the Port Royal pirates had made their way to Nassau, business was booming. And with that in mind, I would like to end today with a discussion of the pirate John Churcher. His right name should probably be John Thurber, but Adam Baldridge records his name as John Churcher, so we'll go with that. John Churcher was small-time in terms of piracy. He wasn't a big name. He ran afoul of John Coxon, once Coxon was a pirate hunter, but that's really the only record we have of his West Indian affairs prior to 1692. There is a story about John Churcher in Carolina, in Charleston, but that involves the doctor that I briefly mentioned earlier and that we will talk about next time. 
But John Churcher made numerous voyages to Madagascar. He may have been in league at one point with Jean Hamlin and the Trickster, at least they are known to have been lurking around Africa at around the same time. His familiarity with the Cape of Good Hope, Madagascar, the whole region really, made John Churcher a perfect candidate when Cadswell Jones and Adam Baldridge and Frederick Phillips set up their operation. Our first record comes from Nassau, circa 1692, when John Churcher took in wood and water there. Now, Cadswell Jones didn't record anything in his journal along the lines of, Today I instructed Captain Churcher to sail for New York, where Frederick Phillips will set him on an illegal slaving mission. But that's not the kind of thing you write down. Still, though, that's what Cadswell Jones did. Because Captain Churcher was about to sail for New York, where Frederick Phillips would set him on an illegal slaving mission. Frederick Phillips, though, was almost certainly not at that meeting. People like him did not go to meetings with people like John Churcher. They've got guys for that. Guys that work for guys that work for guys. He was levels removed from this kind of interaction. But Frederick Phillips did put up his own ship for this operation. One of his ships, you know, he had a bunch of them. But he put up the Charles, a 200-ton, 10-gun brigantine that carried 30 men. I'll let Adam Baldridge pick up the story here, but take note of what he finds important. Baldridge would testify later on, quote, August 7th, 1693, arrived the ship Charles, John Churcher Master, from New York, Mr. Fred Phillips' owner, sent to bring me several sorts of goods. She had two cargoes in her, one consigned to said master to dispose of, and one to me, continuing as followeth. Forty-four pair of shoes and pumps, six dozen of worsted and threaded stockings, three dozen of speckled shirts and breeches, twelve hats, some carpenter's tools, five barrels of rum, four quarter casks of Madeira wine, ten cases of spirits, two old stills full of holes, one worm, two grindstones, two cross saws, and one whip saw, three jars of oil, two small iron pots, three barrels of cannon and powder, some books, catechisms, primers, and horn books, two Bibles, and some garden seeds, three dozen of hose, and I returned for the said goods, 1,100 pieces of eight and dollars, 34 slaves, 15 head of cattle, 57 bars of iron. October the 5th, he set sail from St. Mary's, after having sold part of his cargo to the white men upon Madagascar, to Maritan to take in slaves. End quote. Now, there's a couple of things to note here. First, you'll notice that John Churcher arrived at St. Mary's after George Rayner and Bachelor's Delight, but before Thomas II and Amity. He's the second article in Baldridge's testimony. But more important is that, well, that's a laundry list of cargo. That's a lot of stuff. We have that list thanks to Baldridge's excellent records. He was a businessman, after all but it can tell us quite a bit about what was going on at the time. There were carpenter's tools and grindstones and saws, just the kind of stuff that you would need if you were, I don't know, building a large wooden structure of some kind. If 
for example, that large wooden structure were a fort, all of that cannon and powder would be a necessity. If it was less a fortress and more a, a home for Adam Baldridge, well, look what else he was getting delivered. Clothes, and lots of clothes, far more clothing than he would personally need. Forty-four pairs of shoes. And then there were seeds for planting. A necessity if you intended to live somewhere for some extended period of time. But most interesting to me, and this might be my own proclivity as a bibliophile, are the books. Kind of a lot of books for a remote pirate haven, right? And mostly they were religious books, but also a bunch of educational texts. Primers and horn books were educational books intended for children. They taught reading, writing, arithmetic, that kind of thing. But that is exactly what one would need to build a home. Seeds, clothing, and books. It's also what one would need to build a family, if one were so inclined. Adam Baldridge was building a fortress there on St. Mary's, and the fortress is something that everyone who would visit in the years to come would make special note of. It was impressive. It was a huge wooden palisade just inside the tree line that contained a wall of cannon overlooking the harbor there, and there was a, a scaffolding on the inside climbing the walls to reach all of those gun ports, to hear the pirates tell it it was a, a feat of engineering. But what the pirates that would visit St. Mary's were more interested in was the house. Not the feat of engineering, it was pretty big, but nothing compared to what you could find even in a place like Nassau. Instead, they were more interested in what the house contained. There was food and drink, all of those casks of Madeira wine and spirits. But most interesting to the pirates after months at sea was the women. Adam Baldridge's house was home to lots of women, most of them Madagascar locals. Now, I'm really unsure if I should call them natives of Madagascar here. They'd been there for hundreds or perhaps thousands of years by this point, but the people of Madagascar did originally come from Indonesia. Ethnologically and linguistically, they're considered Afro-Indonesian peoples. Regardless, though, Adam Baldridge hosted dozens of beautiful young Madagascar women at his home, inside his pirate fortress. In 1693, it was not yet the case, but before long, Adam Baldridge was going to have a whole mess of kids running around his fortress. I can't help but think that all of those Bibles and catechisms and educational primers must have been for those children. And there's eventually going to be so many kids running around Madagascar, both here at St. Mary's and at St. Augustine Bay later on, that the genetic footprint of the pirates is still present on Madagascar today. Because this wasn't all Adam Baldridge. I mean, he was certainly doing his part here, but he's not Genghis Khan. He had a lot of help in fathering all of these children. The pirates that would come to St. Mary's to sell their cargo also enjoyed the island for a taste of home, a comfortable bed to sleep in, a hot, fresh meal, and the companionship offered there. This is what St. Mary's was 
not yet, but what it was about to become. And all of that would start to take shape with the arrival of John Churcher and the Charles. All of those supplies would help him to begin building his fortress home, to turn it into what is arguably the greatest pirate haven in the history of the world. But from that point, John Churcher would sail onto St. Augustine Bay, goods that the Signet pirates could use to set themselves up, stuff they really needed. If you found yourself wondering, after the raid on the Gate of Tears, what the pirates from the Signet who decided to stay there at St. Augustine Bay did with their winnings, 1,100 pounds, remember, they spent it on stuff like this. And with all of that money in his possession, John Churcher sailed to what Baldridge calls Maritan. We would call it Mauritius, a small island group southeast of Madagascar that was at this point held by the French. That's where he bought his slaves, which was super illegal, maybe arguably more illegal than what Henry Every and the other interlopers were up to on the continent. Not the slaving, that was absolutely legal in the eyes of everyone, and not breaking down carefully forged alliances with the locals on the mainland, no, what they were doing was buying slaves from the enemy. They were aiding their French rivals. And the RAC really hated it when people did that. But of course they didn't know about this particular exchange. John Churcher did not sail for any major port in the Atlantic world. Instead he sailed, discreetly, to Nassau. Cadswell Jones, governor of the Bahamas, bought nearly half of the cargo, human beings that had been bought with the profit that Churcher had earned on this voyage. The other half, that which had been bought with the profits provided by Frederick Phillips' goods, would go to Carolina. This was extremely illegal, very much outside the law, but it was also extremely profitable. Enterprising plantation owners from the West Indies to the Carolinas and even up to New York, those who were in the know at least, well they had a new supply of relatively cheap slave labor available in Nassau and Charlestown. That's the business model for these interlopers. That's the business that Frederick Phillips had invested in. It was earning men like him and Cadswell Jones a ton of profit. But that profit wasn't going to those who were actually doing the work. Those who were taking on the greatest risk. Those who were in constant danger of being found by the Royal Africa Company. Of being hanged or sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Men like John Churcher, the interlopers, were making pennies on the dollar. And that included blades like Long Ben Every. It wasn't a great deal. So in the weeks to come, we're going to discuss how these interlopers turned from the slavers round and this international slavers conspiracy into the pirate round. After, naturally, Thomas too showed them how it was done. But not next time. Next time we're going to talk about that doctor in Carolina, Charleston specifically. We're going to talk about his role in founding the Carolina Colony and his association with pirates like John Churcher and Robert Searle. 
I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, thank you for listening. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.